welcome back to the line mother flipping podcast my name is aaron alexander this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind body and movement today's conversation is about sex many of the prevailing myths around sex and particularly the domesticated version of human sexuality that we are all indoctrinated into in this modern day world and how do our ancestry our genetics our biology and our anthropological history informs the way that we engage in modern day relationships and what is deemed to be socially acceptable what is deemed to be taboo uh, i think that we are replete with a lot of shame in and around our sexual parts our sexuality and uh, it is just a rich conversation to dig into. And so had my gal, one of my good friends, Dr. Wednesday Martin, on the show to discuss her perspectives on this topic. Wednesday studied anthropology at the University of Michigan. She earned her doctorate in comparative literature and cultural studies with a focus on anthropology, the history of anthropology, and the history of psychoanalysis from Yale. She is a number one New York Times bestselling author of Primates of Park Avenue. Uh, she's got a new book coming up. This particular conversation gets into her previous book, Untrue. I think you guys are going to devour this conversation. I appreciate you subscribing um, so you get each week's episodes. I appreciate you guys leaving reviews. I like to read a review each week. So we're going to read one from JDBF 2011. They say, awesome. I have learned so much interesting and useful information from this show. Love the diverse topics and guests. Thank you. JDBF 2011. All right, let's get to it with my gal, Dr. Wednesday Martin. Beautiful Wednesday Martin. Beautiful Aaron Alexander. I have a question. I've been trying to start with more like poignant, hard hitting questions and then save rapport for later, although we've been. Okay. Reporting report chatting for the last 10 minutes. Sure. <laughs> Why, from your perspective, do Americans at least have an average divorce rate of 50% is the last statistics that I've seen that might not be exactly correct, but somewhere around that. And then the second marriage, I believe the average is 65%. And I don't know what it is after that. But what is going on with that? from your perspective? Great question. I haven't reviewed those data, but we do know that there was a spike in marital dissatisfaction and divorce during COVID and that the pandemic really impacted our social and sexual strategies and behaviors. So we would have to look at that data about that spike in divorces during COVID. We would have to get more of a longitudinal picture to have a sense of just how much COVID and all that togetherness had to do with it. But yes, you know, our divorce rates uh, go between 40 and 50% over the last decades, closer to 50 much of the time. And as somebody who has uh, dedicated myself to the study of sex full time, probably for the last seven years, I think that a lot of it has to do with sexuality, but in a stealth way. You know, an incredible number of people, and this is, I'm basing this on anecdotal data, 
Um, but a lot of people will blow up their marriages because they want to have sex with someone else and they're just not sure how to do it, how to ask for it. But even worse, they presume that wanting to have sex with someone else, not wanting to have sex with their spouse or their long-term partner means that there is something wrong with their partner or with their relationship. Um, very, very rarely do they think, okay, maybe this is about me having a very normal desire for variety and novelty and adventure. And my work has been a lot about reviewing the data and talking to women about how their unacknowledged need for sexual variety, novelty, and adventure impacts them and impacts uh, their relationships. Hmm. I we, think it'd be, oh, yeah, go on. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it would be interesting because I think that's another interesting topic, obviously, that I'm sure you'll you'll go into and you're starting to go into until I interrupt you. Um, <laughs> Beautiful. But, but I think it'd be interesting to paint a picture from a like a biological yes let's um, do that an anatomical yes. anthropological lens. yeah sure so i have and, a background in evolutionary biology and anthropology so i'm happy to talk about that yeah so so within that mm -hmm. in, in your in your book untrue you get into a whole plethora of, of different factoids mm -hmm. of you mm -hmm. know the nerves and in, in the in the clitoris <laughs> and there's a lot of details so could, could you um just kind of paint a anthropological, biological picture of sure. what, what, what would make sense if there was an alien, an alien scientist that was studying the biology of human beings? What would make sense from that objective, as objective as we could be in this hypothetical alien? Okay, say we're talking to an alien and we say to them, we have a deep abiding belief in our culture about sexual differences between men and women. We believe that the social and sexual behaviors of men and women have to do with their physiology. This is one of the beliefs in our culture. And nobody in our culture really wants to acknowledge the data that contradict that. So that's the first thing I would explain to an alien. You know, we have a very clear, I mean, I'm an anthropologist, right? I was, I came up on Claude Levi-Strauss and structuralism and um, dichotomies and how we create our world out of dichotomies. So we have this male-female dichotomy, which has some biological underpinnings, but they're much messier than we'd like to think. And then we put all kinds of narratives and stories on top of that. Now, one of the narratives that we have been really enamored of in our culture, really since Darwin, since the latter 19th century, is this idea that males of all species are sort of naturally, Darwin said, pugnacious and courageous and assertive about sex. And then we have this idea that female, females of all species, including human females, are more coy and reticent and a little bit disinterested. And so then we mapped onto this notion that Darwin said he based on his field observations, which I might point out were quite limited because later field biologists observed much different behaviors of females and males of different species. But at the time, you know, Darwin was quite invested in this dichotomy and people embraced it. And what happened then is as we learned more about reproduction, 
we sort of layered this story about gamete production on top of it. So then we added this. Males are more randy and pugnacious and assertive about sex because they have all these randy, pugnacious, assertive sperm that are all over the place. They have so many of them. They're so cheap. They're so randy. And then we layered on to the belief about females being coy and reticent, this idea of the egg as this passive, choosy, coy, gamete. I like to say that it's almost like people believed she was like at the bar filing her nails, waiting for a sperm to buy her a free, you know, give her a free drink, right? And you can see when I make that analogy, just how much we're projecting our gender roles onto these ideas. The important thing for everybody to understand is that over the last 40 or 50 years, there's been something that I call the Great Correction. And what happened during the Great Correction is much more diversity came into different sciences because of Title IX. So it wasn't just white men going into medicine. Women were going into medicine. Women were becoming primatologists. Women were becoming anthropologists, uh, sociologists, medical doctors, as I mentioned, all kinds of things, not to mention athletes, right, because the Title IX. And what we see 40 and 50 years later is it worked. All they did was even out the science. The science had been very much done by men who understandably were kind of focused on the sexuality of, say, male primatologists might have been very focused on the sexuality of male primates, right? And when you do that, you're focused on, say, the act of copulation. And you tell yourself, there's that assertive, uh, randy, pugnacious male mounting that passive, coy, choosy female, right? And you say, that all works because of eggs and sperm. However, what we found out is it's quite expensive to produce sperm, we're not talking about one sperm fertilizing one egg. We're talking about needing billions of them. Quite a lot of calories go into producing them. And uh, there's a thing called sperm depletion. So males of many species have to be kind of coy and choosy. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of females, uh, when women went into field science, what they observed is that females of many species a, were not just standing there passively being mounted and copulating. They were initiating the copulation. And B, not only were they initiating the copulations, they were extremely uh, what science, some scientists still call promiscuous, which means females were mating multiply in spite of us having this very powerful myth in our heads that only males mate multiply. They have to. They have to get out there and wander and roam, and females just want to lock you down. So when we looked at the actual behavior of actual females across species in the animal world, and when we look at human sexuality, human-female sexuality uh, across the world in different contexts, what we realize is that female sexuality is every bit as assertive and selfish, if you will, uh, as male sexuality across many species. And in many cultures, uh, human-female sexuality will morph to fit its container. So it can either be muted and quiet, like in a culture where women have to repair to a menstrual hut and are clitoridectomized, they have their clitorides removed, or it can be effusive and assertive and joyful um, as it is among, say, himba women who are nomadic pastoralists. And in that culture, they have the uh, 
highest rate of extra pair paternity of any small scale society in the world, meaning that one in three Himba women who's pregnant and married is pregnant not by her husband, but by a boyfriend, and nobody's going to make a big deal out of it. So, you know, the point I would want to make as an anthropologist and somebody with a background in evolutionary biology is there's not any one way we evolved to be. We evolved to be super flexible sexual and social strategists. Uh, but if anybody uh, has evolved for promiscuity, if we want to use that problematic term, I, I believe that it's human women rather than human men. And, and people get so upset about that. Chris Ryan gets so upset when I say that. <laughs> I have to trot out all the data and talk about it. And I want to say it's really understandable that people are not happy to hear that. Because when we talk about who men and women are sexually, we're really talking about who the who and what the human species is. But, you know, we now have data that show us that when it's measured correctly, the female libido is every bit as strong as the male libido. And we also have data that show us longitudinal study after longitudinal, well-designed study uh, from many countries showing us repeatedly that monogamy is a tighter shoe for women in the aggregate than it is for men. And that within years one to four, women experience a really steep drop in desire if they live with uh, an exclusive partner. Whereas men, it kind of tips off more slowly. Now, are there exceptions? Of course there are. But I'm a social scientist. I talk about what is going to change most people's lives how most people are. So uh, women are not uh, who we've been taught women are sexually or socially. Yeah. So I'd like to just like rattle off a few of the points that I thought I found really interesting from not just your book, Untrue, several books, uh, but <clears throat> these were all included in Untrue. In mm-hmm. Untrue. Uh, one of the things is interesting, the female ejaculation or orgasm or climax takes on average about 20 minutes. For dudes, it's, you know, anywhere from whatever, really, really quick to like five to seven minutes Mm -hmm. or so. Yeah, that's right. That would potentially denote that perhaps, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, it's like, why would that not match up unless perhaps there was some (laughs) other stuff going on in there? The wonderful Uh, primatologist Sarah Hurdy says there's a disconcerting mismatch between men ejaculating, yeah, five to seven minutes and women needing basically, if women are capable of having an orgasm from penetration alone, which it seems like only 17% of us are. So if you can't, you are normal. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And she says there's this disconcerting mismatch that it takes women 20 minutes. And then she goes on to build a theory from that, which is that Uh, When you look at the very promiscuous um, mating of non-human female primates, our closest relatives, they will mate one male after another in rapid succession. And we might be tempted to impose some kind of gangbang lens on that, you know, because we're human beings and we live in a very peculiar ecology where men have the upper hand. Um, but uh, Sarah Hurdy's theory is that um, these females are seeking to have an orgasm because it feels good and they have to have uh, multiple rapidly sequential consortships since the males uh, are ejaculating before the females Mm. reach orgasm. So that is one theory. And I do throw my hat in there with Sarah Hurdy whenever I can. 
Yeah. And then another one uh, that is interesting would be the coronal ridge of the dong, the, you know, like the mushroom tip situation there has Mm -hmm. almost like a, has like a plunging effect on what could be other. And maybe there's some, maybe this is not (laughs) accurate, but I believe I remember hearing it was like, it would plunge like three times more than a a dildo that's just completely flat. Uh, So if there's any competitive sperm in there, hypothetically, perhaps from evolutionary perspective, the coronal ridge of the cock is utilized to pull out. Yes. Like, hey, there's enemy sperm or there's the sperm of my rival in there. Okay. So let's remember that in spite of our narrative that that guys just produce all this bountiful sperm and there's so much of it and they just can shoot it everywhere. Oh, yeah. First of all, that's not a good reproductive strategy. If you are mating with a female who goes through ovulation, right? And you're just going around just um, banging, pumping and dumping, whatever, you know, um, on scientific terms we want to use. I like to be very unscientific because I believe in crossing science over for people. I hope no one's offended by those terms. But if you're, if you're a man or a male, uh, a non-human primate doing that, what are the chances well, it's different for non-human primates because a lot of the females go into estrus and you can see when they're ovulating. But say you're mating, uh, you're a human being. You are mating with multiple females. We have concealed ovulation, dude. You don't know when we're ovulating. So like, are you trying to get a bunch of us pregnant? Well, good luck because your chances are pretty slim that if you just go around and have sex with a bunch of women, what are the chances that you're going to get even one of us? at ovulation. But if you stick with one woman, you will get her if you want to use these concepts. This is so heterosexual. I mean, evolutionary biology really needs to wake up and we'll get think, to that. I think that I think the chances are one in six or so or whatever that would be in a percent because you have like about five days that you possibly get preggers. So if you are with the same woman, right, repeatedly, yeah. your chances of fertilization go up. If you are with the same woman, there is a high rate of spontaneous miscarriage uh, across many mammal species, including humans, sometimes as high as 50%. So say you're going all around the place and you have all these multiple uh, partners, female partners. Okay, first of all, very unlikely that you're going to hit it at the right moment, dude. Second of all, what if she miscarries? You are not going to be there very likely for that period of heightened fertility after miscarriage, right? When you could impregnate her. Now, let's say that by some miracle, uh, you impregnate her, uh, she's pregnant, she doesn't have a miscarriage. Uh, Let's talk about how she gets through the pregnancy. It is much better to have somebody there, to be there provisioning somebody than to just be harem scarum, you know, running around trying to provision a bunch of women who might be pregnant. Focus on the one who is, right? And then we know that in many mammal species, um, the offspring really benefit from biparental care, right? So if you're pumping and dumping everywhere, very slight chance you're going to get her pregnant many more than one pregnant or even one very low chances that if she doesn't miscarry, you'll be there for the period of heightened fertility, heightened chances that the pregnancy won't go that well. And if you're not there to provision and then by parental care, if you're not there for that, what is the point? You just basically let your offspring perhaps die by not being there for 
by parental care. So what a lot of evolutionary biologists have been talking about lately is how monogamy uh, seems to have been a strategy that was uh, very beneficial across mammal species and in non-human primates many times, but especially in, in our in our ancestors, you know, in the homo line. So the interesting thing about that is that it also then flipped us, flipped another light switch, which was, is that a good strategy for human females? Would that have been a good strategy for our hominin ancestresses? And what came out of the data was so interesting, you know. So what happened was all these uh, people were saying, yeah, so females are from monogamous and males are from promiscuous, right? So remember I talked about all those amazing uh, field biologists who came along thanks to Title IX. And they were watching and they were like, these females are mating multiply, right? They were like, this female macaque is getting it from every macaque. She is, this female chimp is taking huge risks, right? She's leaving her natal group, entering this group where there are novel males. And then there's a male in charge, basically, or who's, you know, high up on the dominance hierarchy. And she's taking the risk of just sneaking off, right? And risking bodily injury and maybe even death to go mate with chimp males from other troops. And so female field biologists said, hold the phone. We've said that it doesn't benefit females to mate multiply. Well, then why are they doing it? And it opened up a whole big discussion about why mating multiply has actually been really beneficial uh, for non-human female primates and that means very likely our ancestresses. So let me just quickly hop through some of the advantages uh, that they would have reaped from this. Sure. So the whole name of the game um, in evolutionary biology is reproduction, right? And to reproduce, have you ever noticed how like a person might smell really good to you? Like have a sexy smell, for example. Yeah. And there's like all the t-shirt studies and stuff. Yeah. And you might be just be drawn to that person. And it's very common um, for people we have learned from the data who are heterozygous. So it means that people tend to be attracted to people who are genetically very different from them. Okay, so heterozygosity just means different genes, basically. And it means that if you were to have an offspring, that would be a robust, excuse me, if you were to become pregnant, that would be a robust pregnancy because there's a lot of genetic variation and a robust uh, offspring, right? You want to be very genetically different that creates something we call hybrid vigor particularly Uh, from a from an immuno perspective i believe thank you exactly so you want that yes you want that partner to be different and you mentioned the t-shirt studies and they're contested and whatever but give me a break if olfaction plays a role in the uh reproductive and sexual strategies of every other mammal and non-human primates uh I throw my hat in with Leslie Voshal and other experts on olfaction who say that it, it matters to us too. 
I'd like to take a moment and share two things that I am incredibly passionate about. The first one is supporting regenerative farming and regenerative farming practices. The other one is eating nose to tail, particularly from a regenerative farm. That is why I really truly love Paleo Valley and uh, I take their Paleo Valley organ complex every single day. It comes from grass fed and finished liver, heart and kidney to deliver the most nutrient dense foods on the planet in a convenient delivery system without having to acquire a taste for organ meats, which some people are good with them, but a lot of people not a big fan, understandably. Uh, and they can be quite hard to source as well. It's pretty annoying trying to find them at most grocery stores. Organ Complex is the richest natural source of vitamin A and B12, a great source of other vitamins many Americans are deficient in, like additional B vitamins, iron, niacin, folate, phosphorus, zinc, and selenium. So whether you are a vegan, vegetarian, meat eater, whatever, um, you are supporting the health and the well-being of the planet by supporting regenerative farms and you're supporting your own health by eating nose to tail, particularly acquiring some of the specific vitamins and minerals that you'd be getting from an organ complex like this. If you want to get yourself a discount, then jump over to paleovalley.com slash align. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com slash align and you'll get 15% off. They have a 100% money back guarantee. If you do not love this stuff, if it does not make a difference in your energy levels, the quality of your connective tissue and just the way that you feel, get your money back, no big deal. Jump over to paleovalley.com slash line for 15% off. Highly recommend trying their organ complex. Enjoy. I'd like to take a moment and talk about amino acids. On episode 383, I talked about essential amino acids like Keon aminos being one of the best hacks for muscle growth. If you really want to understand just how vital amino acids are for building muscle, think about your body and what it's made of. You probably know that it's mostly water. What you probably don't know is that everything else, all of your solid mass is 50% amino acids. This is why Keon Aminos is a fundamental supplement for fitness. I drink aminos every dang day for energy, muscle, and recovery. Keon Aminos is backed by over 20 years of clinical research, has the highest quality ingredients, no fillers, no junk, undergoes rigorous quality testing, and tastes god dang amazing with all natural flavors. So if you want to naturally boost energy, build lean muscle, and enhance athletic recovery, Got to get yourself some Keon Aminos. You can now save 20% on monthly deliveries and 10% on one-time purchases by going over to getkeon.com slash align. That's G-E-T-K-I-O-N.com slash align. That is 20% savings on monthly deliveries and 10% on one-time purchases. Getkeon.com slash align. Can I add, add something with sure. that? Like the, the general arc of what I perhaps I was planning and I'm not attached to the, the, <laughs> the conversation going is, is creating this bridge between in your, in your book, I think you say something along the lines of like our, our biology is we're sinners at a biological level, you know, and yes. then there's, and then there's the stories on Let top me tell of that, you. Which, yeah. which doesn't necessarily mean that we should act out these biological sins right. and urges. It's just know who we are. Yeah. But the, it's not wrong. There's nothing right. to be judged. It just yeah. 
is. Yeah. And and then it's like, how do we fit within Then how do we fit within it and what do we do? Yeah, that. sure. But, so but, the, th- but the, the thing, the thing I want to, I want to say with that is within that, that like immunocompatibility thing with the, the t-shirt studies. Histocompatibility. Histocompatibility. Uh-huh. Yeah. Within that it's, I think there's a very interesting intersection that the modern human is navigating some better than others, but it's worth talking about. There's this biological you know, histocompatibility, pheromones, breathing, looking facial symmetri- symmetry, and, you know, all of these parts. And then there's also like our, our urges to have sex with each other and the different ways that we may have for millennia. And then on top of that, there's the, what is my checklist, my, my bullet points of, okay, the guy has to drive a Range Rover. He has to be higher up on socioeconomic status than me. He has that's to in be. One, that's in one very specific ecology. Or for, or, yeah. or, or for a guy, maybe it's they have to be younger than me. They have to be have a certain hip-to-waist ratio. Here, they have here. To be, yeah, yeah, every so, but, one of so, those studies that purports to be about universal standards of attractiveness, yeah. there are studies uh, basically negating them. But, you know, well, to your point, we general. have to, yeah, but to your point, we have these competing things. Okay, yeah. so if we say so we're talking you. about, that was, that yeah, was no, I, like, love, the whole I love that point. It. We really have to get to this. I so appreciate your redirect. I do want to just briefly. No, please, please, please. This please. is the perfect yeah. way, actually, I think, to get to your point, Aaron. So when I'm talking about why it would have benefited our ancestresses to be, quote, promiscuous, unquote, and I mentioned heterozygosity, okay? Yeah. The other thing is if you're, um, say, our homo ancestress and you're just having sex with one guy, okay, what if you don't have heterozygosity with him? There goes your there goes your offspring not going to be as healthy. What if um, he's uh, infertile or just has kind of low sperm motility and he's the only guy you're mating with? Okay, well, that's a problem. So those are just two reasons that I'm going to get into of why a lot of people, including Chris Ryan and I and uh, Sarah Hurdy, who's, um, you know, I really respect her work. She's really meticulous. Those are just two reasons why it benefited uh, our ancestresses to be, quote, promiscuous, unquote, just getting better quality sperm, depleting the sperm that their rivals would have access to, um, right? If you're having sex with lots of males, there's less sperm for your uh, rivals, your rival females. The other thing that could happen is that, you know, a lo- there's a there's infanticide in many mammal species. And we know that, for example, male primates, non-human primates, will not kill the offspring of a female they have had sex with one time because mm. they figure, well, that might wow. be my offspring. Literally will not. And so then you say, well, If there are infanticidal males, that could explain why that female chimp was taking these tremendous risks, right? Taking these tremendous risks to go out and that would be the benefit of these high risk behaviors of being promiscuous in a container where you could literally be killed for it. Okay. But for this next part, to get to your point about our container and our urges, I need to get a visual aid. Would you give me one second? Yeah, please, please, please. During the time that you're away, maybe I can just go through some random factoids that I have. All right, here's some quotes that I wanted to mention throughout the podcast that when our darling guest Wednesday comes back. Oh, she's back already. All right, never mind. Here we are. Oh, wow. That looks like a space creature from another planet or a clitoris. 
I'm back. Yeah, right, I'm back. We, here, we, here we are. There's a little bit of glare oh, and yeah. a little bit of noise. Okay. Females are that have clitorides. That's the plural of clitoris if you want to be super cool at a dinner party. Female chimps and human females are not saying, I'm going to go have sex because I want high quality sperm. I want heterozygosity and I don't want my offspring to be killed. They're saying, I'm going to go have sex because it feels really good. The reason it feels really good. And the beating, the, the, yeah, the beating heart of human evolution for me is the clitoris. I always say that our lives and women's lives and our sexuality, women's sexuality really happens at the intersection, to your point, what you're talking about, at the intersection of the clitoris and the culture. Women evolved for pleasure. They have an organ devoted entirely to it. We now know that that organ, the clitoris, is hundred times bigger than we thought it was. We thought it was just this little retiring glands, clitoris, right? That's the only part of it that you can see with your naked eye. And then we realize actually it's this incredibly extensive network. And even if you clitoridectomize a woman by removing this, she can still get pleasure here. She has spongy erectile tissue around her urethra. She has it in the perineal sponge back by her uh, anal opening. She has these um, vestibular bulbs here and these crura that wing back toward her anus. Okay, what I'm saying is women have an organ devoted solely to pleasure. Men do not. And that helps us understand the backstory of both human female and human male sexuality. So, you know, those chimps and our our homo ancestresses were not going out and saying, I want to find a guy to give me a really great baby. They were saying, I want an orgasm. So female orgasm really has played such an incredible role, um, I believe in the evolution of our species. Now, a lot of people think it's just extra and it doesn't matter. And why did we evolve this female orgasm uh, when it doesn't do anything for reproduction? Are you kidding? Because it feels good. So that does a lot for reproduction. Um, it It also could act somewhat as like a gatekeeper to determine whether the mate is the, like the quote unquote, the one, a viable mate, because if, if a person, if a, a woman is experiencing pleasure or like extreme pleasure, doesn't that change something with the pH or something along those lines to make them more open and susceptible to re- receiving sperm? Um, you know, we have a lot of theories and sometimes to me, not that one in particular, but, uh, Female sexuality is so understudied still, and we still so much come at it from a male perspective that there are a lot of trying to retrofit the way we are as natural and normal. But what we know is that if you take a human female or a non-human female primate out of a coercive setting, right, she will mate multiply because it feels really good and because she has an evolved appetite for variety and novelty and adventure because it served her well. Remember, she got good sperm. She got 
uh, she could ward off infanticide. Um, she had more provisioners at the nest, if you will. So my belief is that promiscuity was a very pragmatic, beneficial strategy for our homo ancestresses and that the software is still in there. Yeah. And that the proof that female sexual pleasure really motored uh, human evolution is in the clitoris. Now, but you talk about our container and that's very important. What do we do with these urges, right? Because we might be women who live in a culture where women are clitoridectomized, or we might live in the United States, right? Where a woman who, uh, quote, cheats unquote on her husband, um, might be shot in the face for that, right? So we know that uh, women who are murdered are mostly murdered by domestic partners. And David Lay, who studies female, quote, infidelity, unquote, has said that it's his belief, um, backed up by data, that even the suspicion of female infidelity uh, is one of the greatest predictors uh, that a woman will die at the hands of a man in her life. So we live in a very peculiar container and you can't really understand female sexuality uh, just by looking at our culture, right? Like you talked about our preference for uh, a waist-hip ratio here or women wanting a guy with a Range Rover here, right? And too often we universalize that. That's here where men mostly still have control access to resources, still largely out-earning women, still largely uh, outnumbering women in terms of uh, meaningful political participation and meaningful high-paid labor force participation, right? So that's how we are here. And women are seductive toward... We're talking a lot about straight people today. I want to talk about queer people soon, and we will. But so these behaviors that we want to call universal... They're really from our one weirdo uh, hierarchized, you know, with a really strict gender hierarchy culture, which is a, just a wrinkle in time, you know, that only started happening 10 to 12,000 years ago. So if you took those same females and put them in a different cultural container, you would see very different sexual and social behavior. And that's what a lot of untrue is about. A lot of it is about let's see how women are across cultures when they're not worried about getting shot in the face. Yeah, there's a so I want to there's still other, I I think, just interesting little factoids about the biology of, of men and women, but something else that is another interesting lane that's completely tangential and I don't know if it's wise to go into it now, but <laughs> well, then um, by all yeah. means, do it. But, but I was supposed to say because I, I like I find I find these things so exciting. Let's do so it. I just want to like I was like just this is interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I I think you're probably familiar with the like the I think they call it like the Tinder study. It's like the eighty twenty Pareto's principle in relation to Tinder. Tell you us about it. Before? Go so ahead. Essentially, and there's probably contention around this, like any other study ever. Um, <laughs> But upon like running the numbers, the statistics in Tinder, essentially the top 80% of women are seeking out the top 20% of men. It's just referred to as hypergamy. You know, so women kind of like want to date up as far as socioeconomic status. And then that remains the bottom 20% of women from a socioeconomic perspective slash like fertility, et cetera, um, for to compete with the bottom 80% of men. And then that leaves this interesting, like liminal purgatory middle space where it's kind of like, we don't, it's like, we don't know it's a misfit because we're, once again, I think it's a bit of like, perhaps like an evolutionary mismatch of the things that we're seeking as, as cues that would indicate 
you know, a, a mate. Um, uh, yeah. And often we think these things are universal, uh, but they're not. You know, we get into it a little more and we're like, oh, wait, that's very different. Like this this preference for this waste hip ratio, we're only seeing it in plow agriculture settings, for example, or places that historically had plow agriculture settings. Or to your point about Tinder and percentages, um, that's a real, that sounds like a really interesting study. I'm not aware of it. What I do know from having interviewed dozens of men and women who use Tinder is that if you're a woman who shows your body on Tinder and um, conforms in any way to um, within, you know, a, a swath of our cultural beliefs about what's attractive, right? And you say that you're just looking for fun. I always say to women, you will know what it is to have the power of a world leader. There are more men than women on Tinder. And what that means is that usually, Aaron, in the world, sex ratios are pretty balanced. Okay. And then you take out the women who are out of the mating pool because of uh, reproduction, um, lactation, child rearing, right? So then you always have slightly more men than women in the pool of potential uh, heterosexual reproduction. Mm. That makes women the limiting sex. And the limiting sex is always the one with the power, if you uh, want to think of it in those terms. So what does that really mean? It means that, here's an example. I remember going to a bar. I was in my early 30s. It was down in the financial district. And it was during that period, finance was very dominated by guys. Today, it still is, right? We talk about finance bros. So there were, there were maybe three women in the bar. Men were falling over themselves to be polite to me and my girlfriend to buy us drinks. I used to drink then, to light our cigarettes. I used to smoke then, to just like engage us in conversation because there were so few of us. Now, if we went to a bar where it was mostly women and only a few men, we would see those behaviors changing. Men would be the limiting sex and women would be making a fuss over them. So my point here is what kind of ecology is Tinder? Now, what happens in the industrialized West and in our nation is we have these pretty much equal sex ratios, but women tend to be the limiting sex, the powerful one, if you will. Then a lot of us move to big metropolitan centers, right? We moved to New York City. We moved to LA. And a lot of young women move there for educational opportunities they might have in their smaller hometowns, um, for uh, fun, opportunities for fun, and for opportunities for sexual connection and romance that they might not have in a small town. And that means that what tends to happen in some big cities, sorry, you guys, I'm moving around and making a lot of noise on my That's chair. Okay. Okay. But what ha tends to happen in a lot of these metropoles is that men become the lim straight men become the limiting sex right and so women are like jesus i can't find you've heard women say this i can't you know straight women lamenting that they can't find men. well the sex ratios are not working in your favor so i always 
say to women, heterosexual women who want to get married or want to find a sexual and romantic partner or whatever it is they're looking for, if they're looking for a guy, like move to a city or a place where sex ratios are in your favor and you're the limiting sex. Find those cities. You could go there. But Or go on Tinder because women are the limiting sex on Tinder. And depending on what you're asking for and what you're all about, uh, you know, I have had men just, I mean, and I've interviewed therapists who tell me men really tend to, there are exceptions, but in general, men report and have more negative experiences on dating apps than women do. And it's just because on dating apps, women remain the limiting sex. How did we get into that cul-de-sac? Oh, you brought up Tinder, which I just love. You know, I just love making the point to people that our sexuality really morphs depending on its container, right? So female sexuality in particular will morph wherever you put it. Put women in a place where we say that women are supposed to be monogamous and it's supposed to be lifelong and whatever, right? Also, don't tell those women It's normal that you want variety and novelty and adventure. You're kind of wired for it, but you're not getting it. So, of course, your libido drops in a long-term exclusive cohabiting relationship, right? And so then women are saying, "Uh, I guess I'm not into sex. And it's like, no, honey, you're just not into sex with that same guy over and over and over and over again. You were kind of made for variety and novelty and adventure even more than your male partner. And there are things that you can do about it, right? Now take that same woman and put her in a different ecology. Put her in one of the sex parties that I would go to for field work, right? And you might find out, take her to skirt club. You might find out that a lot of truths about female sexuality, that it's sort of more bendy and plastic uh, in the aggregate, uh, depending on her age, than that of men. So Skirt Club is a is a sex party for women interested in women, but most of them are in long-term relationships with men. Uh, you'll see that a woman's sexuality in a context like a safe uh, sex party where consent is the rule and there are no men there. She might she might be queerer than she knew she was and really have fun there. She might, uh, her sexuality will be much more assertive and selfish. I was shocked the first time I went to an all-women sex party of, you know, women who identified as mostly straight. Most of the women who go to these parties identify as a two or a three on the Kinsey scale. Our sexuality will morph according to its container. So if yeah. you have a container where there's less coercion and slut shaming and threat of violence, female sexuality will be over the top. And if you put women in a situation which could be an abusive partnership or just a long-term monogamous uh, partnership or marriage where you live together, you will see female sexuality mute. So that's really a point that I like to make to people. And then people get confused about like, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. Like we're supposed to be promiscuous. No, we're really flexible sexual and social strategists. So you can see cultures where there's polyandry, right? A woman having more than one husband. Um, And you can see that in parts of China and Tibet. Um, You can see women in Brooklyn who have a boyfriend and a husband um, or, you know, a girlfriend and a wife. Um, Or you can 
go look at the himba. And as I say, it's very normalized for a woman to be married to a man and he tolerates that she's pregnant by another guy and nobody really thinks about it. Context is everything. And that's why I like to stay away from universal assertions. That said, I do believe uh, that women evolved for pleasure and promiscuity. But you yeah. don't have to do it. You can, and you can get your variety and novelty and adventure in all kinds of ways. You can get it in a monogamous, uh, long-term marriage. Yeah. So the last little live together. The, the last, the last little like anatomical bits that I wrote down that I was excited to share. Oh, to please, like there's have, some anatomical have, bits. Have, have in the cup. Yeah, exactly. I like it when um, you call them bits. Yeah, exactly. Me too. Um, so one another thing that's interesting in relation to the female taking on average about 20 minutes to to climax compared to the man. They also and how have, rare that is. How rare it is for women to yeah. Yeah, so that that's too. important. And so then, and then within that, they also don't have the refractory period that men do. So no refractory man, period. Tell people yeah. what a refractory period so is. So when, when a dude jizzes, he releases a bunch <laughs> of cocktail, different hormones and chemicals. One is prolactin is a common one that's like notable in relation to that. And there's probably a whole, you know, yes. there's, you know, there's a whole, whole bunch mm -hmm. of them. Um, but within that, you know, you get kind of sleepy and disinterested oftentimes. Unless I well, think and also like really you just can't get it up again. Right. Exactly. Right. That's yeah, an yeah. important well, point that, that yeah. men have. The, the refractory period is linked to there only being so much, right? And yeah. it's also linked to age, right? So a man can have, if your refractory period is, say you're 18, your refractory period might be an hour, right? You have an orgasm and then yeah. you have an erection within an hour, maybe even sooner, right? But by generally as um, men age, uh, the refractory period gets longer, um, so a guy in his forties, his refractory period might be not the, the one hour that it was when he was 18, but it might be seven hours. It might be overnight. It might be, I've had men tell me I'm happy with sex once a week now. And, um, so there goes our idea that, uh, men are just so horny all the time for their whole lives, right? Yeah. Men are human beings surprised, but yes, men have a refractory period which is just the period they need to recoup <laughs> yeah. to have another orgasm. But women have no refractory period. Orgasm, 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 orgasm. You know, there is a woman, I believe she lived in Leeds, and I wrote about her in Prime, and, and excuse me, in Untrue, who had, I believe the statistic was 62 orgasms in an hour. Mm. I believe that she was, uh, so, having sex well, with another woman when that happened, which is no surprise, right? Because if 17% of women can have an orgasm from penetration alone, that's a, that's a minority of women. Um, that means that in an ecology where men kind of rule the roost still, even if they don't feel like they do, statistically they do, that means we're going to prioritize male pleasure, right? It's really easy for men to come from intercourse. So we're prioritizing intercourse, yeah. But put us in a situation where we've had, say, four women presidents in a row, and we have half of Fortune 100 companies are run by women, and uh, women are really high wage earners across the board. I believe that in that situation, you would see us prioritizing female pleasure, and that would mean that you know intercourse would be one thing that we do, but we would women would be having a lot more. That, that gets into a whole another can of worms in relation. So the Tinder study essentially <laughs> one of the biggest one of the biggest things with that the suggestion is that women are out competing themselves in a socioeconomic perspective to um, essentially 
if you raise as a, as a female, raise yourself above that socioeconomic standard of, of men, suddenly the people that you're attracted to, the term for it's hypergamy of, of like, kind of like dating up, you want to be a little bit older, love it all, all, you know, all the things. Um, and men are like, you know, essentially the opposite of that. Um, then you compete yourself out of mate viability, not just mate viability, like you're attractive, but also mate viability, like you are attracted to those people. You're like, who are these fucking losers? Like, why am I so much more successful than these people? You know, <laughs> well, I'm also let's talk about how we live in a really weird ecology where a lot of men, I'm sure present company and many listeners excluded, but for decades in the United States, the norm was that women were only considered attractive when they were sort of nubile and mansplainable and pliant, right? And sort of, um, you know, we liked these huge age gaps between men and women, that the women were much younger. That was a status marker. Guess what we're seeing now um, that women are earning more, although we have far to go. Women are outpacing men in education and women are making strides in terms of political representation and uh, meaningful labor force participation. Guess what we're seeing now? Dramatically less pregnancy. I don't think that's what you're going to say, but that's one of the things we're you're seeing. Right. <laughs> women are like, I don't, you know, I'll take my time with this. You're right. We're delaying child uh, childbirth. Although then we get educational messages about having um, kids earlier. And so th that'll affect us, th that choice. Uh, but what's really interesting also, in addition, and I do find that interesting, Aaron, and important. The other interesting, important thing is that the more women close these multiple gaps, uh, the more we see uh, preferences, uh, like on YouPorn, one of the most popular categories is MILF. Mm. We're eroticizing uh, older women, younger man dyads. It's if I, I interviewed many young women, young young men, excuse me, for my new book, Free Agent. And anecdotally, we know this and that younger men are very in the aggregate. There's much more interest in older women now than there was in previous generations. I mean, in previous generations, it was so weird that we had a movie about it, like The Graduate, right? Like it was so weird that Benjamin was into Mrs. Robinson. We had to make a whole feature film out of it. But now, um, now that we're closing up all these um, inequalities, a little bit. We have far to go, but we are seeing that now younger men are really into powerful older women. And yeah. so another thing that my friend, the anthropologist Steve Josephson told me is if you're studying mating and dating and relating, look at what's happening in Hollywood, right? And you'll see it sort of spreading across the country in years to come. So we did have, you know, the show Cougar Town and we did have women in Hollywood very openly dating younger men for the last decade or so. And so there's probably also that. It's probably, you know, that aspect of um, culture at work there as well, right? That we see aspirational people doing it like, oh, I want to get a MILF. So, but to me, it's attached to material conditions on the ground, like earning yeah. power, political power. I want to take a moment and share one of the most nutritious, most delicious, and most intelligent blends to add to any coffee or smoothie. That is Kala Genius from Bioptimizers. What Kala Genius is, is it combines cacao and four different kinds of mushrooms. It's lion's mane, reishi, cordyceps, and chaga. This cutting edge blend fights brain fog, helps repair your brain, improves your ability to focus, and boosts something called 
BDNF, which stands for Brain Derived Neurotrophic Factor, and it is considered or nicknamed Miracle Grow for the brain. After each serving of Collagenius, you'll feel calm, alert, and energized. Your ability to memorize and recall information will likely improve. That's at least been my experience. And you'll get a hefty dose of antioxidants for immune support. It tastes absolutely delicious. It turns pretty much anything into a delicious mocha beverage. I really love adding it to most beverages, any smoothie or coffee-esque drink. I put a scoop of this stuff in here 100% of the time. I really like it. I think you guys are going to like it as well. They have a 365-day money-back guarantee, no questions asked, so you have absolutely nothing to lose. I highly recommend trying this stuff. You can get yourself 10% off as well by going to newtopia.com slash align genius. That's spelled N-O-O-T-O-P-I-A dot com slash align genius a-l-i-g-n-g-e-n-i-u-s the code is align 10 at checkout and you will save yourself 10 percent off get free shipping and per mention 100 money back guarantee if you do not absolutely love this stuff so jump over to newtopia.com slash align genius for a discount want to share something that I find to be incredibly important, and that is the excess consumption or absorption of microplastics from our environment, from our food, and from our salt is another place that we are getting that stuff from. Uh, why this matters is microplastics end up messing up with our hormones, they end up dysregulating our physiology, and they mess with things like fertility and things of the sort. So we teamed up with Colima Salt, which is comes from Colima, Mexico, which is one of the only uncontaminated salt sources on this sweet blue planet of ours. And we got you a absolutely free bag of Kalima salt. So all you got to do is jump over to alignsalt.com to redeem your free bag of Kalima sea salt. No, no code required. Just jump over to A-L-I-G-N-S-A-L-T.com to redeem your free bag of Kalima sea salt. And it is a legitimate bag. It's not like a little sample pack kind of BS. It's a real bag. It's delicious. It's crunchy. Uh, it's amazing for cooking really anything you're going to do. It's one of my favorite salts on the planet. It is free of ocean-borne microplastics and uh, you get it for free. So check it out. Jump over to A-L-I-G-N-S-A-L-T.com for a free bag of Kulima sea salt. Yeah, our, it seems like our... our choice or inclination towards a lot of things including sexuality is highly plastic like you could go back um to an era where if if you were you know a big girl or you know if you're a big fat pasty chick you'd be super hot because you're obviously wealthy so i guess there is some come coming or more big fat pasty dude um from yeah we're seeing yeah yeah you know what you just reminded me of go ahead finish i'm sorry oh well so yeah so that that plasticity of our inclinations and drives and urges and compulsions that is that is very interesting yes it is Um, you know you make such a good point about larger bodied people which is that as we see sex positive images and body inclusive images on social media right or lizzo you know being very proud of being larger bodied and other women doing it the more we see that on social media the more, you know, fashion and art 
will follow suit. And then the more normalized that becomes and the wider our aesthetic becomes, which is again, um, kind of giving the lie to a lot of these really facile reductive theories that, you know, women always like men who are like that and men always like women who are like this. And we see how culturally specific a lot of those preferences are, right? I always say um, if men just quote naturally unquote want uh, young nubile women, why do I have so many 30 year old men on my tail all the time? But what well, I really, but what I really is- mean is, why is MILF one of the biggest categories? And the obvious point is that it's because sex is not about reproduction. It's about letting your freak flag fly. Yeah. It's about your preferences. It, you know, sex is about so much more than reproduction. Like if sex were only about reproduction, you know, there would be no queer people. So we really can't account for everything, right? With evolutionary theory. I mean, if, if we're going to use evolutionary theory for anything, it's going to be that we evolved as super flexible sexual and social strategists. Cooperative breeding is the reason we're here and other previous homo line ancestors are not. And that's why our sexuality and our preferences are so wide and weird and wonderful and, you know, just so varied, Right. Because there's not one narrow lane for sexuality any more than there's one narrow lane for evolution. Evolution is, you know, a lot of things. It's also about genetic drift. It's about shit, just random shit happening and being selected for. It's about a lot of different things. It doesn't have an end game per se. And our sexuality really reflects that, just how varied it is, just how varied our preferences are just how varied our kinks are. I always say, you know how some people are just super ashamed of having a fetish or even a kink. And I like to say to them, you are proof. You know, you're the reason we're here in a way, you know, just the incredible variation of human sexual preferences and strategies. That's one of the main reasons we're here where, you know, enjoy that kink, enjoy that fetish, be proud. Or it may, um, you know, take you over and become a compulsion that's actually problematic in your life. I think it's like when, when we're ashamed and, and guilted about some aspect of ourselves, that's when it becomes dark. And when you put, you know, some, if you put a piece of bread out in the sun, it'll just kind of, you know, it's, it's like, it's, well, actually bread what might mold in the sun, but you put something, a, a piece mm-hmm. of bread underneath your rug and like a dark and you spray a little moisture in there, it's become a filthy, disgusting mess that stinks up your house. And it's going to be this really heinous thing, mm. you know, but if you put it out in like the open air or whatever, it just naturally decomposes and just disappears. It just, it just goes back in this beautiful yeah. circle of life. Yeah. It's and so a rich, it's the same, it's a, same thing with yeah. our, with our, with our complexes and compulsions yeah. and neuroses and all the things. If we can I, look yeah. at each other with a, a less judgmental lens, which ultimately the judgment's probably coming from ourselves and then project out, you know, but if we can look at things as just like, ah, like it is, it's like, right. okay, this, this, this doesn't, this isn't about because you feel this way, this isn't an affront to, to me mm-hmm. or my identity or my personhood. It mm. just, it just is, you feel that way. Just, you know, I can, I can accept yeah. that. And yeah, I can do that I, same with myself. Yeah. So we can like, we can breathe and allow all of these different aspects of ourselves Absolutely. to be able to grow and evolve and naturally connect. And we can start to relocate 
some of these like dislocated aspects of ourselves in, in all levels, but also mm-hmm. sexually speaking. Yeah, that's I a think. really good point. I think that, you know, if I were to say anything that I learned from the cross-cultural data about sexuality and the evolutionary biology of sexuality, I would just, I would really want to reassure people that when it comes to our sexuality and our relationships, weirdness is our baseline, you know? Sure. Everything's weird. All you gotta do is travel. If you travel, you go to another country, you're like, oh my God, I grew up in a suburb in Pennsylvania where it's just like, it just seems so normal. We were nudists or whatever, right? Like all kinds of shit going down or whatever. Everything is astonishingly strange. All it takes is going to another place where it's a new normal. And you're like, (laughs) oh, I am so strange. I had no idea. It's it's really a wonderful thing to see all the variation in sexuality. And, you know, it's so funny. The other thing I say to people who are poly or non-monogamous who, you know, we – still deal with so much stigma. You know, whenever like the New York Times or somebody runs an article like, is monogamy unfashionable? Like as if monogamous people are persecuted. I know that those of us who are non-monogamous still have far to go. Like they're clutching their pearls. We're so scary to them that they are refusing to see just how privileged they are and just how deep monogamy is. But what I wanted to say about that is that over one in five Americans in one poll of single Americans said that they had been in a consensually non-monogamous relationship at some point. And people do not disclose honestly, on stigmatized topics such as non-monogamy. So we can presume that rates of participation in non-monogamy are higher uh, than that would suggest. And we can certainly presume, researchers like Amy Moores tell us, that the interest in non-monogamy, researching it, looking at it, um, has really increased exponentially over the last years. And what I wanted to say about that is, if anybody tells you that it's weird... um, I do so many things that people think are weird. My husband and I are in in a partnership, right? We live apart together. We're married, but we live separately. Um, We're in an open marriage for four years now. And um, so it means that a lot of people confide in me about things that they think are very weird and stigma that they encounter. And the thing is, if you are in a poly configuration or an open relationship, you're actually kind of right on target uh, with our evolutionary prehistory We evolved as cooperative breeders. A lot of uh, evolutionary biologists and anthropologists now think uh, we mated multiply. We raised our children cooperatively. And this new arrangement, the dyad, the monogamous dyad, we're very flexible. We can adjust to it. But I want people to understand that it's relatively new. It's only 10 to 12,000 years old, and we're adjusting to it. So if you like an alternative relationship form, or if you're struggling with monogamy, there's nothing wrong with you. You're kind of right on target. Mm. Yeah, and and, and so so within that, I think that that's kind of... So the, the last little bits, which I won't even like get into, but there's there's interesting More stuff bits. around 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 the testicular size of humans compared to other yeah. primates that are yeah. tend to be more polyamorous and such. So humans essentially got balls a, a bit smaller than chimps and bonobos, which essentially have like these big sperm factories. Yes. And then but they're bigger than gorillas, and I think macaques might be the other one, which they're they tend to be in gorillas at least tend to be in harem, so there's not really much 
sperm competition for yes. my yes. very yeah so sarah stuff. yeah you're great this is great i mean sperm competition is a thing because the clitoris is a thing because female promiscuity is a thing so yes a lot of people are very interested in testicular size and you said it really well that you know people like sarah hurdy hypothesized i think correctly and then other people crossed her science over that testicular size probably indicates you know, rates of female promiscuity. You need a lot more sperm if you're dealing with randy, randy females, uh, if you and, will. And, and and male, I'd imagine. That's not just a, fe- a female thing that men have bigger balls, right? That would be if you, you're creating more semen probably to spread it beyond uh, just one. Right. You're trying, well, you're, if, there, if the strategy is female promiscuity, you're going to need more sperm to compete with your rivals, right? Because you have a lot of rivals. Whereas to your point about male gorillas um, and the um, way that gorillas live, where there's a a silverback and multiple females, right? He only has to worry about the occasional challenge from a blackback who wants to be the silverback. But in terms of mating, he has access to those females. So he doesn't need as much sperm. Whenever people talk about testicle size, I also like to um, remind myself and other people that what's more recent is studying the clitoris and just how this extensive organ of pleasure um, has not just uh, played a role in helping determine female sexual strategies, but male sexual strategies too. You know, they yeah. kind of go hand in hand. Like if, if, if female promise, if it didn't feel good for females to mate, <laughs> you would hardly need to have a ball sack at all. Yeah. So, <laughs> so where this goes, this is like finally like the crown of the conversation where I wanted to eventually arrive upon, upon creating Okay. Uh, like an anatomical anthropological foundation sure. is like, first it's like, it's okay to feel away. Like you can reduce the judgment. And I think that in a culture where you grow up, maybe puritanical, or at least you're some level of indoctrinated through Christianity and such. And the idea that your penis or your vagina is maybe shameful or something. We don't yeah. talk about it. It's down it's there. Terrible. It's your yeah. private parts. It's, there's so much stigma attached so much to stigma our attached. genitals. Like it's unbelievable. Yeah. unbelievable. So first it's like, it's a worthy journey for any person to begin unpacking the amount of shame likely that has been imposed upon them. At least just like investigate yes. in there. Is there it's, some shame around my sexuality? Oh, there and there. The answer will be yes. And I always say that religion came in and finished the job that the plow started. Right. Yeah. And so the, oh. the plow, that plow, the idea with that gets into like property, essentially, mm-hmm. right? The owning of property. Yeah, that's when women really became the property of men, and that's when we expected monogamy first asymmetrically from women, but then we expected people to be in these monogamous dyads, right? These monogamous couples for life. And it became so untenable. A lot, I should say, you know, a lot of people find that monogamy is their happy place. They're willing to make those sacrifices and it's good for them and cozy and they love it. More of us uh, statistically will find ourselves in what I call various monogamy conundrums. Right. And there's a spectrum of those conundrums. One might be that you feel bad that you're watching porn 
Are you betraying your spouse? One might be that you feel bad flirting with your barista, right? Is that like, am I being unfair? Is it, is it, a guy might be like, am I being unfair to my boyfriend that I'm flirting with this uh, really hot guy barista at Starbucks? And then the other conundrums are, well, what do I do if I want to step out and dealing uh, with, you know, sort of a risk benefit analysis, if you will, of stepping out um, on the DL and the risk benefit analysis of asking explicitly for non-monogamy. And of course, we know that there are places where women literally die, right? We know, we know that there are places where women die for not wearing their hijab the right way. And we know that in the United States, a woman can die for breaking up with a guy. Um, so I always have the safety issue in my mind for people in general, you know, for men, it might be terrible, debilitating stigma that impacts their career negatively and impacts their self-esteem negatively. If they're not monogamous for women, the risks tend to be more, more like slut shaming that whole spectrum from slut shaming to physical danger. So we've made it very hard for people to make any decision other than monogamy. So I call it without disparaging it. And I respect that some people love it, but I call it compulsory monogamy, which is pretty much uh, Mm. what it is um, in our culture still, but we're insisting on alternatives right now. You know, they're only available to certain people, Um, but because they're so in line with our evolutionary prehistory, I have hope that people will have access to more buried relationship containers with less stigma, you know, yeah. in the future. Here's hoping. Yeah. So I know that we're wrapping up and winding down. And I is it okay that we, we like finish the conversation with, because we haven't talked at all about, essentially this whole conversation has, has just been presenting the case that humans probably want to hook up with a variety <laughs> of other humans from a biological perspective. But then there's the other aspect of it, which is, well, now we live in a different culture than we did pre-agrarian age. That's you know, right. So now we live in these separate nuclear families and we're much more autonomous and I can order everything for my house and I don't really you know, need the tribe. I mean, we, we definitely do. I think that's probably the, the root cause of most disease and modernity is, is probably the veering away from those tendencies. But from a at least like survival perspective, you don't need the tribe the way that you did. If you have a bunch of money, you can sit in your apartment, order everything, order sex, order food, order all the things and like survive. So with yeah, within that, mm-hmm. we, we live in a different- I don't know how good your quality of life will be, but yes, go on, please. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. It's not going to be a good quality of life. Yeah. I don't know how good your quality of marriage is going to be. I don't know how, you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> statistically speaking, it seems like we have some things to work on, but it yes. still is a different world that we exist yeah. in. And so, and so within that, I wonder how do we come, what are the solutions to dyad based relationships or monogamous relationships mm-hmm. where they truly are is like, that's, that's awesome. That's great. You know, love, love the idea. You know, just, I'm not like being offended listening to this. But I really do truly prefer the safety and the certainty and being able to come home and to death do us part. And like, that's my jam. Like, I I love that. Great. That's great. And so within that, I think that the, what is the solution for that person to maintain both both desire and intimacy? Okay. I love Because they're different channels and Mm -hmm. almost different poles and they require, one is freedom. 
you know, right. whereas the other is kind of like certainty. Yeah. So to be able to combine freedom and certainty is a fucking yes. dance. You know, it's so funny. Okay. Well, I love that the first thing you brought up was this idea of isolating yourself in your house and how far we've come from our evolutionary prehistory as cooperative breeders when we most likely mated multiply and raised our offspring cooperatively because who knows, it might be mine, right? Um, so we veered really far from that. But to me, the proof of what a big part of us that is, is that we are such a gregarious species. We are so pro-social. We are so affiliative that we have neurofeedback mechanisms so that I feel better sitting here making eye contact with you on a Zencaster podcast than I would if we weren't doing that and this was just audio. Our neurofeedback mechanisms, our biochemistry, so much of us uh, has evolved to ensure that we keep connecting with others. I'm looking at you. We're not in the same room, but we can make eye contact. We can sort of imitate each other's facial gestures, which is a really important thing that we do when we affiliate. And then that boosts our mood. It heightens our sense of connection with the other person and other people. So here's what I love. If you're a person who you want monogamy, right, just stop asking that other person or expecting that person to be everything. You're pro-social and affiliative. Your preference is monogamy? Great. But you're pro-social and affiliative, and so is your partner. So get out there and have lots of friends, right? Have a big group of supportive people. I really think that based on our evolutionary biology and based on the cross-cultural data, one of the healthiest things that we could possibly doing be doing, excuse me, right now, especially post-COVID, tend to your friendship garden. Add people to it. Mm. Treat friendships as just as important as romantic and sexual relationships. Put as much energy there. And that way, you know, you'll be talking to that software, that cooperative breeder software in your brain, you'll be connecting with it and it's going to feel really good. You know, it used to be literally unsafe for us to be alone or just in a dyad. It was super unsafe. You know, we, we didn't have claws. We had predators with big teeth. We didn't have claws. Uh, you know, we didn't have big teeth. We had each other. There's a deep feeling of safety that we get when we're with other people. It was dangerous to just be one or two. You could die. So sometimes, you know, I think about, and this is just my training, I think about that kind of unique loneliness that you can feel when you're only with the person that you love for many days going. Because this is a great thing, like, you know, you're getting your dopamine and your oxytocin, but there's something missing. And that is just the context of a joyful, supportive community. I just hope people, one of their takeaways today might be that you might think that COVID didn't fuck you up, but it did. And one of the best ways uh, for you to heal is to prioritize friendship, to prioritize having a big group of people around you, not just your spouse and your family or not just your lover and your family, but a whole community of people. And it's so hard because we don't value it here. We value the dyad, but swim against the stream and find other people doing it. And believe me, yeah. it's going to feel really good. Did I answer? Yeah. Was that relevant? Yeah. Well, no, no, it's great. I think it's a big, I think it's a big, um, it's just such a huge 
conversation. I think, it, and I, but I think it's so fucking valuable because somebody clever, somebody else said like your 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 life is uh, essentially reciprocal to the quality of your relationships or. Is that yeah, exactly. You know, I you think know? you said that really well. Yeah. And I just love that you brought up loneliness and how monogamy yeah. can isolate us. It can yes. be a great thing, but just beware that it can be isolating. Well, if and you just become, steps. if you become, I just finished listening to um, mating in captivity. By oh, Esther right. Brooke. Yes. And that's another one, which I, I would highly recommend. I would recommend listen untrue and listen to mating in captivity. I think they'd be great places to start if you're interested in going deeper yes. in these conversations. You know, um, Esther so beautifully crossed over that idea of Stephen Mitchell. Stephen Mitchell is a psychoanalyst who said, we're always trying to balance mm-hmm. our desire for security with our just lust for adventure and mixing it up yeah. and, and thrill. Yeah. So th- that's a lot of what our sexuality is in the current cultural container. And I think that Esther's book, Mating and Cactus, really gets at that on true really gets at that Stephen Mitchell really gets at that you know what I wanted to say Aaron just for people who are interested we just touched a little bit on kink and fetishes and if people want to read a great book about that um, Daniel Bergner wrote a fantastic book called The Other Side of Desire. And it's so sympathetic and beautiful about fetishes. He talks about how people who have a fetish can experience a kind of ecstasy and joy that those of us who don't have one will probably never understand. So I would add that to the reading list. And also What Do Women Want uh, by Daniel Bergner. Great yeah. book. Yeah. And so I and 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 I, I know we're really closing, but the the, the the something that I gathered from the the one just I love the the title mating in captivity because it's like oh my god I am a domesticated mother flipping animal that thinks that my name is Aaron and I wear fucking salmon tank tops and I do jujitsu and I have all these stories about who I am and whatnot but like I am living in a god dang you know domesticated like cage essentially it's like this is not just normal this is this is very novel very it's new. very culturally specific that we expect people to thrive sexually in a lifelong truly monogamous versus just a socially monogamous relationship we're asking a lot of people yeah and, and the so, captivity so, metaphor is great and so within that in that captive situation that one of the stats that i got from the captivity is that 15 to 20 percent of married couples have sex less than 12 times a year is something that i read in there i don't know if that's exactly accurate yeah. but regardless if it's even close to that and i think 11 times a year is considered like a sexless you know relationship you know and so so within that it's like i i think a lot of that is complacency it's boredom it's familiarity it's, it's all the things that are beautiful, perhaps from an intimate perspective of like, I know everything about you. You know everything about me. We finish each other's sentences. We're essentially the same person. We're in love. And women hate that, to be exactly. clear. <laughs> Female sexuality dies with every piece of dental right. floss that a man leaves on the counter, straight right. female sexuality. Every time you talk baby talk to us, you are killing our clitoris. We know that women bore first. We know that domestication and institutionalizing the relationship, which we thought women loved, we know that that impacts the female libido more than the male libido. So so what I just wanted to say, Aaron, is a big part of sexless marriages is us not telling women, hey, it's normal that you get bored of sex with the same guy you live with uh, within one to four years. 
Now you're going to start doing this thing called service sex because nobody told you it's normal. You're just going to have sex for the sake of the marriage, for the sake right. of the relationship, for the sake of society. Don't do that. We need to tell people. So the reason marriages are sexless is because we don't give women good sex ed about who they are sexually and how they have a very normal drop in desire when they're with the same partner for one to four years. If we only told them that, can you imagine? So that's a sobering statistic that you shared. I do want to share one cheerful one or two if I could. Yes, please. I want your listeners to have something to look forward to. My new book is called Free Agent and it's about being a woman in in my 50s that I moved to LA and I make all these big changes in my life. And it turns out that women in their 50s do tend to make huge changes in their lives. It's when women are very likely to start new businesses, ask for an open relationship, decide that uh, after all these years of uh, being heterosexual that they want to have a relationship with a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, All kinds of things happen at that age and we have data to back, to prove it. But one of the most wonderful things I found is that, because you're talking about how rarely um, sometimes couples have sex, I found something wonderful, which is a study that tells us that people in their 50s have sex as often as people between the ages of 18 and 49, and that one in four women in her 50s reported in this study uh, that she was having the best sex of her life. So something to look forward to. Yeah, I hope that makes sense. I, I think it's all it's just it's all about how you play your cards, you know. And that's like I think just like the, the finishing yeah. the finishing aspect of how do how does one which I don't you know I'm I'm trying to figure this out, but how does one maintain that spark and that passion and you know that desire within the familiarity of a contained monogamous relationship? And one of the things that I got from a Tony, it's a Tony Robbins quote it says passion is in a relationship is commensurate with the amount of uncertainty you can tolerate, which is very, it's a very, like, I think it's an interesting thing to do. It's like, yes, it is interesting. I would add something else. Do you want to be, are you a straight man? And do you want to be in a long-term relationship where the sexual spark doesn't go away? Well, we know from the data what kills the female libido. If you can have separate bathrooms, have separate bathrooms. If you can have separate bedrooms, have separate bedrooms. And if you can live separately, live separately. What Cynthia Graham found in a very big, well-designed study in the UK of adults between the ages of 17 up until their 70s was that women alone lost interest in sex with a partner, a long-term exclusive partner, when they lived together. But when they did not live together, they did not lose interest in their sexual partner. So I can Mm. tell you all kinds of things. Don't leave the dental floss out. Don't talk baby talk to us. Don't presume that when it goes south in years one to four, there's something wrong with us and we don't like sex. We just need variety, novelty, and adventure. And if you can, don't live together. Yeah, and that's that. And and that the there's another quote from Marcel Proust. It says the real voyage and discovery consists of not seeking new landscapes, but having new eyes. So I think that that's another potential direction where it's like. I know that I'm I'm uh, have have been a, I don't know guilty, but this is something that I've engaged with of like continually getting into new relationships and kind of coming to a certain stumbling block or roadblock where I'm like, okay, lose interest, move on. Within that, I think it's in a way it's like oh, I think maybe it's just because I'm a boring person. Well, you know, maybe, like, maybe it's, it's that you're a limerence junkie. 
Limerences, that period in the beginning of a relationship where everything's so good and sexy and you're so giddy and you can't wait to see each other. And maybe you're just a limerence junkie or you're, you're seeing this tendency in yourself that you pursue limerence and now you're trying to balance it, you know, with, with something longer term. And thankfully you live in a community from what I can tell where you and your partner will have options. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think, I think coming to a place of, of, of just maintaining otherness seems to be invaluable. And that's what you're suggesting with like that mystery, that spark, right? Yeah. It's when you get, do not go on a date together, show up separately for the date. That's interesting. Meet at the bar. See your person from across the room. See how other people are looking at your person. See your person Mm. as like a sexual object through other people's eyes. See your person flirting. Yeah. Yeah, Don't get ready in the bathroom together. Get in the car together. Go to the, Go to dinner together. Do not do that. Show up separately. Mystery, and, sexiness, room, air. Yeah. And also be willing, I think, to objectify <laughs> each other. Because I think that's one of the issues with when you're with the person that I love. Like, you're my wife. You're the mother of my children. Like, I don't want to do these terrible things that I would do to some, Right, and then people you know, split it off. Then people split this into two different things. No, you can have that with the same person. You can have dirty, sexy, hot sex with your long-term partner you just need some creativity and you just need to understand you know the situation and what the data tell us about why that's harder if you live together and what you can do about it yeah. so many things to do All right. i mean even watching porn is a way to be novel to, to be new to each other yeah. watch porn pretend she's doing that with him while you're doing that with her pretend Pretend they're doing that with that other couple while you're doing it with each other. I mean, that can make people new to each other. That's a way you can trick your brain into, hey, this is variety and novelty and adventure, even if you're in your marital bed. And do scary things. A lot of people think, oh, just chill out and Mm. it'll be sexy. You need some excitement. Um, some adrenaline is helpful. There have been studies about this that people who go on roller coasters together find find themselves very attracted to the other person uh, on the roller coaster. It's called misattribution of arousal. You can fool your brain and do that with a long term partner. Do something scary together. Yeah. Um, you know, do um, do something new together. Take dance lessons. Yeah, go. Uh, actually, the roller coaster effect does not seem to work for long-term couples. But do mm. scary, interesting things. And I, I tell women, like, don't just take a bubble bath and relax and have a glass of wine before sex. Do things that get a lot of blood flow to your clitoris. Do some jumping jacks. And some some sex therapists will even say, like, watch something a little bit scary, like that adrenaline. You can misattribute it and it can be arousal. Those, those pathways cross. Mm. All kinds of things to do. Many, many suggestions in my book on true. I love this. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron, for having me. It's always so much fun to talk to you. And here we are yeah. to yeah. acro right. yoga next. Next time we will do acro yoga. Oh, that brings up a question. Yes. And this is so. So this is at the end of the podcast. Sometimes I do it. Sometimes I don't. Um, sure. I, I ask one question. We put in the aligned community. It's I'll, I'll share the link for that. Okay. It's like a private community. It's a great place. Um, but so last question, something that I think is very challenging for many people, at least me historically was bridging the gap to make connection with the person to get out of the friend zone for a very long time. I was like, Mr. Friend zone, even though I was like 
you know, physically reasonably attractive, all the things I still would just find myself like not being able to bridge that, that gap. And so I'd be interested in your perspective of ways for people that are like dating, you know, in the beginnings of potential, a potential relationship to respectfully guide things in the direction of deeper connection. Is there some things okay. that, that, that well, we first of all, no, this is great. I love this. If you would like to hear Dr. Wednesday Martin's response to this question, you can find it over at the Align Community, which is absolutely free. It can be found at alignpodcast.com slash community. I really had a great time with this question. It turned into kind of a little micro conversation. So jump over, check that out, alignpodcast.com slash community. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed this conversation. Sure. Thank I you, Aaron. It. So did I. It was so much fun. Yeah. Um, so where can people go to learn more about your work? Where can people go to develop <laughs> their minds, their relationships? What, sure. Where should people go to go deeper into these topics? Uh, sure. So I have three books. They're all a sort of a blend of social science and memoir. And the most recent one is called Untrue. And it dives into the science of female sexuality, the more recent science of female sexuality. So people might like that. My main ecology, my main social media ecology is Instagram. And on there, I'm Wednesday Martin PhD. And on Twitter, I'm Dr. Wednesday Martin. And um, maybe if you have listeners who are on Twitter, God, could you guys just tell me to tweet more consistently? That would help. Yeah, I've, um, never yeah, got, so I've never gotten into the Twitter. I don't, I'm not, I'm not smart enough for Twitter. That's the issue. I don't know. Is it that, or is it that like, we like, um, pictures and captions and we like how images help us tell stories. Yeah. I'm a big thirst trap guy. That's, I feel like that's my main <laughs> offering. Wow. I need to be checking those out. Yeah. It's hard to thirst trap on Twitter. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Aaron. I appreciate you. There's I a, appreciate a, you. You're the there's, best. There's a shadow developing in my background from the light. So, you know, it's it just got dark outside. Oh, here, me so. too. Like I have really not been able to work the lighting. So oh, that's fine. That's uh, sorry fine. to everybody. Um, for, that. for people listening, check out the video for all the things to be on YouTube and also in the Align community. It's at alignpodcast.com slash community. It's totally free. It's awesome. Um, so if you want to see the charts of the clitoris, how do you go? Clitoridy? Clitorides is what just say it in the plural. Go, go check that shit out. Um, thank you so much, Wednesday. I appreciate you. And Thanks I again, look forward Aaron. to getting to hang in the, in the, in the IRL. And do um, some acro yoga. Do I'm acro never going to leave you alone. About don't, let me, no, don't let me off the hook. We're going to go. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for tuning in. And enjoy your clitori, clitoridy, and I'll see Enjoy you your clitorides, people, or enjoy oh, yeah. your friend's clitorides. Clitoris. Yeah, I'm enjoy I'm, that. I'm, I'm here for that. All right, over Safely now. and with consent. Guys, devoured that conversation. Per mentioned, you can jump over to the Align community, absolutely free, to hear the end of this conversation, which I really enjoyed very much. Uh, that's found over at alignpodcast.com/slash community. That is a free community. There are a couple thousand people in there presently, and uh, I pop in each day, share all sorts of exclusive content that I think you guys will enjoy. It's alignpodcast.com/slash community. Thank you for sharing this conversation. If you are inspired to do so on Instagram, you can find me at Align Podcast. On YouTube, it's Align Podcast as well. Wednesday Martin is Wednesday Martin PhD. Appreciate you all. Big love. I'll see you next week.